0: Well, the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, which we just read over, is like we talked about last week, more than something that we're simply meant to just kind of recite, it's a pray then like this. It's an invitation into a particular model or paradigm, a skeleton for a robust, vibrant prayer life, which is something that many of us all desire. We would want to be able to have the kind of prayer life that Jesus has, and yet so often we find that, that journey very confusing or very challenging, and so Jesus' invitation is so, so life-giving. Pray like this. He just gives us the framework of where we're meant to go. Now, as a bit of recap, you'll see from behind me, last week, Jesus' model of prayer contains these six movements, or these six words is what we've been referring, them to, uh, referring to them as. Father, name, kingdom, bread, forgive, and deliver. And we are on week two of a six-week series looking at each of these movements, these kinds of prayer, that we might grow and understand them, and not just to understand them, but to actually put them into practice within our lives, into an integrated whole. But if if you'd put on your Bible nerd hat for me for a moment, I want to point out something else as we begin today. And so what I mean by Bible nerd hat is simply just paying attention, close attention to the passage, to the text. What you'll notice is alongside having six movements, the Lord's Prayer contains two parts, which you can immediately find by just paying attention to the pronouns. In the first half of the six movements, the first three is our Father in Heaven, and then your name, your kingdom, your will. And then on the back half is give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you see the two parts within the six movements? Yes, the first half is dedicated to our contemplating, adoring, and interceding for God's glory. And the second three movements are prayers about God's provision, forgiveness, and deliverance of our needs. Now, here's the rub. If this is how Jesus teaches us how to pray, this order should create a bit of tension within us because most of our prayers, most of the time, put the cart before the horse. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright identifies, the danger with the prayer for bread is that we get there too soon. We get there too soon. We get to give us today our daily bread. Now, while there are moments of your life when the bottom is going to fall out from underneath you, and all you can do is cry out, help, the problem, the danger, as N.T. Wright identifies it, is when the majority of your prayer life functions like a Christmas catalog. Now, this week, I believe the devil himself slipped in to our mailbox among all of the bills and you know, the other unwanted mail that we get, this giant multicolored Christmas catalog, Right? And what happened is, regardless of how much we try to like go through the mail and like, you know, the the kids, it just, they find, there's a gravitational pull. My six and my three-year-old, or my seven-year-old, almost eight, man, that's wild. Uh, And my three-year-old, they just, what? She's about to turn seven. She's not about to turn eight. (laughs) This is the day cool talking, all right? Normally I would know the age of my own daughter, but not today, not today. So anyway, as this catalog comes into our home, Um, And and it's filled with all of the hottest toys of the Christmas Christmas season. And so it's filled with a sticker book of like, I want this. Give me this that you can put all over it. And so my kids end up meditating over this like target Torah, like a medieval monk by candlelight, (laughs) as they circle all of the things that they not only desire, but now are convinced that they need. And so the Christmas season in our capitalist moment begins not with family celebrations or meals, baby Jesus, or the Vince Garaldi trio on vinyl, yes and amen, but the Christmas season begins with give me. Now, I'm no Grinch. I love to give my kids gifts, and I love to hear what sort of things they might like, um, what things they might delight in, and then to plan with Aaron about what we could give them. But the danger with the gifts of Christmas is that our kids get there too soon. When our regular prayer life largely flows around, God, please help me get blank job. Please help my kid do better at school. Please heal my friend's diseases. Give me a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. God, give me. What ends up happening is our needs and our wants come before God's glory and greed gets in the way of grace. And even more than that, and this is what I really want to focus on today, is when we find the cart before the horse, our needs before God's glory, it reveals, excuse me, a dark dynamic within our hearts that we, to flip the words of the second movement of the Lord's Prayer, honor another name as holy, or as other translations put it, we hallow another name. Now, this may seem strange to some of us at first, as most of us consider honoring something as holy to be identifying it as having some capacity of moral perfection. But to honor something as holy in the most basic sense of the word is to distinguish it apart from something else. It is set apart. It is holy as as opposed to common it is special as opposed to ordinary it is to distinguish and set something apart as unique and so to honor something as holy is to set it apart from all else and to give it a place which serves as almost this, it's the if you know this is the sci-fi in ryan coming out right now it it giving it the gravitational center of this solar system of of the other things that it relates to and so when 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 god in genesis chapter 2 hallows is the word that comes up sanctifies sets apart as holy the sabbath day what he was doing was the sabbath day is set apart unique distinguished distinct different than all the other 6 days right or when god hallows sets apart uh, the, ta- the tabernacle or the temple as holy space, what's happening there is not that the space is somehow morally perfect. It's a space that all other spaces revolve around because this is a space that's unique. It's the gravitational center of the camp or the city. How are we doing so far? Okay, now. What this means then is that our our prayer life regularly places, once again, our needs before God's glory. What this reveals is there's another name which we have set apart, placed as unique, put as the center, the gravitational center of our lives in which that name is what we live and move and have our being in. And so God, like everything else in our life, is merely an accessory toward that name. Does that make sense? And so you can find, specifically, when you look at the the needs that you're praying for, always coming to God with, are, are a fast way to discern what is the name that you're actually orbiting around. And the reality is, this takes a A great uh, danger that that the soul enters into when it tries to make something other than God the thing that it holds at the center of its life. You've heard me quote it if you've been here for a while, over and over again. But you're just going to get it until all of you can repeat it back to me. David Foster Wallace, in his commencement speech, This Is Water, back in 2005, says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. We might say there's no such thing as not honoring some name as holy. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the wicked mother goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will um, always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and unafraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you from your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious, the, they are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you are doing. Notice that line there of how you measure value, how you measure uniqueness, what's separate, what's the distinct thing, what's the, whole, what's the name that you honor as holy. Everyone worships. Everyone has some name at the center of your life that you're orbiting around. And the great danger in the names of power, approval, control, or comfort is that they're just far too fickle for you to build your life on. And when you assign them that much weight, like, like a star, they crumble underneath it all. And even though, I mean, black, black holes have an orbit too. But it's not an orbit in which they live and move and have their being. It slowly grinds them into, we don't know what happens when they go into the black hole. Oh no, we know it's not good. Sorry, science fiction moment again. Like like David Foster Wallace says, the problem with them is they will eat you alive. If I was a cool youth pastor, this is where I would say, what we hallow often leaves us hollow. And so one way, one way of misreading. Jesus' two-part structure of the Lord's Prayer, of putting God's glory before our needs, one way of misreading that is that Jesus is worried about God, as though God needs you to stir up his ego before you can get to the bread and the forgiveness and the deliverance. But the reversal is true. It's Jesus that's worried about you. He's worried about what a, what, what, what a prayer life could actually do to you when God is merely an accessory to some other name. He's worried about that de- deforming work in the process. One of my favorite, um, it's, it's probably on the top 20, one of my favorite books, G.K. Beale does a biblical theology of idolatry called We Become What We Worship. And he traces how there's this theme throughout all of the scriptures where when people go after and worship certain things that aren't God, they end up becoming like that thing. So when they worship animal, kind of like you know, pagan gods, those people become animalistic. When they're worshiping things like wood or stone, even though the idols may have ears and eyes, the people become like them. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see what God is up to. The thesis of the book is, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. You see, what we need more than our needs is a name that's glorious and big enough to bear the weight of our honor. Now this, to come back to David Foster Wallace, Ever the Universalist argues that all it needs to be is some spiritual type thing, is literally how he puts it. This is a perspective that was shared by Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office, um, with an interview of him promoting his new book, Soul Boom, which he's arguing against atheism and makes the case, though, simply just for some kind of God, some kind of spiritual center to your life. And while I greatly respect his insights about the dead end of materialism and atheism, the mistake that Rain, along with David Foster Wallace, make is the underlying assumption that all gods are created equal, so to speak that they're simply different ways of talking about mystery as though your choice of spirituality is as consequential as vanilla, chocolate, or soft serve. And while that sounds really, really nice, the problem is religion just simply, or whatever faith, spirituality, simply doesn't work that way. Like he, he talks about, whether that's Allah or the Wiccan mother goddess, like Islam and Wiccan are just two separate fundamental ways of looking at the world. Judaism is not Buddhism. The list goes on. And in fact, it's incredibly patronizing to anyone who's done any amount of work with those respective religions and backgrounds to say, oh, you guys all believe the same thing. These are all fundamentally different ways of viewing what we call God and what it means to be human that shouldn't be patronized down to being like oh they're all the same thing they should be engaged with humbly and understood humbly but they need to be identified as having different ways of viewing the world and any attempt to you know like chocolate and vanilla swirl them together destroys both of them in the process we need to honor what each and one another in the world hold seek to understand but we cannot pretend that they're all the same and so it's interesting to come now to Jesus, the historical, fig, the historical figure in whom all major religions and spiritualities in the world try to do something with. It's so wild to me that you have multiple religions that really don't need to do anything with Muhammad, the prophet, but he's a very big deal within Islam. But Islam has to do something with that Jesus guy, right? Every religion has something to do with. What are we going to do with this? Jesus guy. And so it's interesting when we look at Jesus, when we find him giving the Lord's prayer, he's convinced that there is one singular name which stands above and apart from all others as being worthy of being honored as holy. In the Lord's prayer, that's what he's giving us, that the name that deserves that kind of recognition is the name of the God that he just previously called Father, that he called Abba the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, the God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Exodus 34. At Mount Sinai, Moses comes to God up on Mount Sinai. In verse 5, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. And then it goes on, Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. He honored that name as holy. Now, a couple of things that are worth identifying within this. This is when Jesus goes, our father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. This is the name that he's thinking about. As like a good Jewish rabbi, this is the name that he's thinking about. It is this God that we're honoring as set apart and unique and distinct. And so just a couple of things. The first is simply just the name of the Lord, which is translated as into English as simply the Lord. The Hebrew underneath it is best pronounced as Yahweh, but most often it's translated here and throughout scriptures as simply the Lord as a way of honoring the name as unique and distinct. There's much more that can be said on the, the specifics of the name I Am, We actually taught about this back in, I think, February in our series called I Am, and so you can go back to spend time on this. But what's so central to this passage, and I think for understanding what Jesus is getting at in the Lord's Prayer, is that the Lord wraps up his name in his character here. He's wrapping up who he is and why he's worthy being honored as holy. And so, just to, to break these down, if you have Exodus 34 up, you can just keep that up there. And so, first is simply in the, the giving of his name, the Lord, the Lord. He's, he, is a, a, he is not an unknown thing, but a person with a name seeking relationship. That's why he's giving his name. And he identifies himself as first being compassionate that is, I care, I share your feelings. We've talked about the the word for compassionate in the Hebrew throughout is is the root word for it is is, is womb. It's what a a mother has. And so to say that God is compassionate, which is used to talk about most often about moms, in one instance in the Psalms about God as a father, but in all cases, for God to be compassionate is a reflection on his parental love for his covenant people. And he's not just compassionate. He doesn't just care. He's gracious. That is, he helps. He gives undeserved help by being still an unobligated giver. He just gives out of his graciousness. He is slow to anger. That is, he's patient. In the words of Gary Bashirs you can make him mad, but you got to work at it. That God also can hold his anger without ruining it. And so God is patient with us, but he's not permissive of brokenness and with sin and injustice within the world. There's this Wonky thing that's been introduced within the church that it's an order for God to be compassionate and gracious means that he never gets angry. But the expression of his compassion and his grace for his world means that though he's slow, he does get angry but then we're immediately swung right back over to the fact that he's abounding in faithful love. That is, he's faithful to his promises, he's faithful to his people, and he serves them and loves them, he is for them. And then he's not only abounding in faithful love, but in truth. That is, he is consistent and faithful and dependable and trustworthy. Maintaining love to a thousand generations, this is a reflection on the fact that God is eternal and everlasting, not just in his being, but in his faith, his covenant love for his people, his love for his people is everlasting and eternal from generation to generation. And so he's forgiving of iniquity and rebellion and sin. And so his desire is to forgive all kinds of brokenness, but we have to want it. He is, as, as you could put it, itching to forgive. He forgives eagerly. This is who he is. He is forgiving. But then we're reminded he will not leave the guilty unpunished, just He's just. It's a way of saying that God is just. That God is committed to right in a world that's pulled towards wrong. And so while he is forgiving, those who pursue a life apart from identifying their need for forgiveness, God will, in a sense, honor that decision. But the consequences will fall back on them. There just simply are people who don't want forgiveness. And most often it comes to people who spend a life of putting their own name at the center of their life. And therefore, to identify that there's any level of sin, iniquity, or brokenness within me would cause their whole internal solar system, so to speak, to fall apart. And so they can't. They can't. They can't. They must deny their faults in order to keep up the illusion that their name is at the center of all things. And then the one that most likely meant all meant the one that most likely made all of you squeamish, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the the third and the fourth generation. What's going on here is the identification of the reality we all know to be true. The parent's sin has consequences for their children's future. We all know this to be true. And so here's an identification of that reality. And similarly, that sin has a way of running in the family. That we don't just have the consequences of what mom and dad did, but we also end up in some ways leaning into and living out of that for ourselves. And so because God is just, he will continue to punish sin in each and every generation until it's completely gone. So just because God punished your parents for their sin doesn't mean that you're going to be off the hook. Or just because one generation went through their systemic sin means that your generation is now off the hook for engaging and doing what's right. The consequences of what was done before us continues all the same. But when we read this within the characteristics of what we've looked at so far, we're reminded of the purpose of this work, that God is so committed to his care, his compassion, his grace, his desire to forgive and help, that what he will do is allow the consequences of what a family has brought down onto each generation for the sake of them, if so being, hitting the wall and reaching the ramifications of that brokenness so they might come to the place of desiring forgiveness in a new life. And so this line is simply reflecting on this reality. But we have to read this line in light of the two repeated words. One, what's the most repeated word when we look at God's self identification of himself? It's faithful over and over again is the primary word that God uses to define himself. And the second word that's repeated twice is the word generations. And what's interesting here is that when God talks about his faithful love, that is for thousands of generations. But these consequences are only to the third and the fourth. So when you look at the scale of God's justice and his mercy, the scale is always so much heavier set on mercy than the other direction. Now, why do I bring all this together in in a series on prayer? Because there's a level where... The invitation of last week of contemplating God as Abba and Father can lead to this is the only expression I have for it viewing God as like a Werther's grandpa. I don't know if any of you grew up with those those commercials of like the kind of like ideal like this like idyllic picture of like the grandpa who just kind of sits in his chair doesn't do anything all day and then when the grandkids come over I've got something for you like and he gets the Werther's out and gives it over to the kid right and that's all grandpa does that's all he relates to them as is like the gift giving fun to be with guy who's got sugary sweets for you right and the primary problem is when we read Abba Father through that lens and not this one. We just have a fundamentally broken view of God and why we should honor him as holy why we should honor him as distinct. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, may your name be honored as holy, this is the name he's pointing us at. This is the name, the creating and sustaining God, who is not a mystery that we're all just kind of throwing blankets of names on, but a person, a self-revealing person, self-disclosing person, who wants you to know his characteristics, wants you to know his personality, so that you can relate to him properly. There's no guessing game with this God. He's made it very clear who he is and what it means for us to know him. And so then when we now put God's glory before our needs in prayer, we actually allow this character to shape how we approach all of those needs. When I'm praying for forgive me of my debts, I'm not trying to get God to do something that he really doesn't want to do. When I just know, based off Exodus 34, that he is forgiving of a... nick, Right? I'm tapping, I'm not asking God to be something other than who he is. When I'm asking him to deliver me, when I'm asking him to bring about justice in the world for his kingdom to come and will to be, right, I'm not calling on God in the Lord's prayer to do anything other than who he's revealed himself to be. And so that just brings a freedom now in my prayer when I remind myself of who it is. And it's this name then that Jesus believed his entire life and ministry was all about, Jesus, as Emmanuel, God with us, is the revelation of God's name. What does Exodus 34 and this self disclosure of God look like in a person? What would it be like if this God lived and and joined the human team and we got to see what this looked like up close? That's precisely what's happening in the life of Jesus. You read through the Gospels, and unless you go through with a razor and you're cutting out different things, you find a person who's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, who's forgiving. But we also find in Jesus the one who will not leave the guilty unpunished. When we find in the life of Jesus and in his ministry, the most surprising and scandalous thing was that the God who revealed himself at Mount Sinai like this was the same God who went up Mount Calvary. And the primary place that we see, what does it mean that he's compassionate, that he cares about us and feels for us? It's Jesus going to the cross. What does it mean that he's forgiving of iniquity? How does he bring that about? Oh, it's through Jesus going to the cross. All of this brings us to that the the chief place where the name of God is revealed and put on display for us to process and consider and look at and to then honor as holy is when we see Jesus on the cross. This is where we find an expression of compassion, a faithful love that will stop at nothing. And then what happens when we come every single week and we take from the bread and the cup, it's the act that we keep on remembering and receiving. And the absolutely wild and similarly surprising and scandalous dynamic at work in all of this is that what begins to happen on the other side of the life of Jesus with his resurrection on the other side of death is his name now becomes synonymous with the name of Exodus 34. When they start, re- review, when they start talking about Jesus as the Lord, What's happening is they're they're putting Jesus together with the one that he called Father and this deep oneness that like later theologians, our best swing at is this word Trinity. Philippians 2, nine through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every other name. What's the name that's above every name? Throughout the scriptures, it's the Lord, Yahweh. It's It's the creator sustaining God. And here now, Jesus is one in that. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So just notice Trinitarian stuff right now. That the name that the Father, that Jesus talks about the Father with is now shared by the Son, but that doesn't mean that he became the Father. There's still, this is for the glory of the Father, right? This is the insanity that we're trying to name within that. But Romans ten thirteen for every, I love this passage, y'all, oh, I could just talk about this all day. And I might, because the day quill is strong. Romans ten thirteen: For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is at the end of Romans chapter 10, where Paul is making the case for people going out and preaching the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And what Paul does here is quotes Joel two thirty two: For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That passage in Hebrew, the Lord is the Lord, like burning bush, creator God. And now Paul uses that as a way of talking about Jesus. And so the father is brought together with the son and it's self-giving life is the primary way that God has revealed himself now to us. DJ Murata in the book Liturgy in the Wilderness writes, if David Foster Wallace were still alive today, A follower of Jesus might respond to his insightful commencement address with a simple reversal. What sets Jesus apart from all other gods and idols is he's the only God who says, instead of me eating you, you must eat me. Instead of bringing our offerings, we receive Christ's. Instead of sacrificing to our God, our God is the one who sacrificed himself for us. What a beautiful arresting mystery that should stop us dead in our tracks every single week. You see, the beauty of the life of Christ is the name that has honored itself. The name that is truly the one that is at the center of all of creation is the one God that says, I'm I'm not looking to consume you so much as I'm inviting you to consume me, to bring my very essence into yourself. That the sacrifice that this God comes for, yes, involves you giving your life, honoring it as holy, but it begins first and foremost with the initiative of the God who gave himself for you so God's glory comes before our needs in prayer because at the end of the day, that's our greatest need, is a perception and a view of God's glory in and above and separate from our needs, which then we can bring into them. How are we doing? This is the revelation of the name that subverts idolatry, and this is what Jesus invites us to pray. And so the calling then for us is, yes, on one level, a whole life which honors God as holy. But for this to happen in all the nooks and crannies of our existence, the fundamental and foundational starting place of it all is with a daily prayer practice. Annie Dillard writes um, in her book, uh, The Writing Life, this is so good, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. A schedule, or we might put here a daily practice, defends from chaos and whim. It's a net for catching days. I love this. It's a scaffolding on, you can tell she's a writer. It's a net for catching days. It's a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. A schedule is a mock-up of reason and order, willed and so brought into being. It is a peace and haven set into, I love this, the wreck of time. It's a lifeboat on which you find yourself decades later still living. How do we get to a life of honoring God's name as holy? By giving ourselves to days that do it. And what Dillard calls the wreck of time, Matthew's gospel called the wilderness or the place of temptation. And when Jesus began his ministry, it began by him going out into the wilderness and him facing temptation from the enemy, Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Just fill in here the target catalog. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And and honestly, one of the key dynamics of the devil in scriptures is he is happy to take your worship and give it to any name other than God's. it's It's not always explicit Satanism. But Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Our lifeboat in the wilderness, Jesus' means of getting through temptation was by putting God's glory in front of his needs. And that doesn't mean that his needs weren't important. It doesn't mean that his needs weren't met. The angels come and serve him. But it means that God continues to be the the center. And so one of the primary ways that you can stomp on the serpent's head before you start your day is by beginning with a, with a practice of adoring his name. So to get very practical here, last week we began a daily practice of prayer, the end goal being that we're gonna move over the course of six weeks to by the end of the series, you being able to pray through the Lord's Prayer every single day, whether that's for 15, 30 minutes or an hour by breaking each of these moments into two, five, or 10 minutes. Last week we began with contemplating the Father, And then this week, the invitation is to add, depending on how long you chose, two, five or ten minutes, to after contemplating the Father, moving into the daily prayer practice of adoring His name. Now, this can take place a whole bunch of ways. Let me give you three ideas and options. The first is that we can honor His name by saying it, simply by honoring His name, His character, His faithfulness, His uh, gratitude, just praying thank you out loud. God, I'm just just waking up and praying coffee in hand and just, God, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you've been to me throughout my life. God, you are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are the one that right now I live and move and have my being, and you are the one who's faithful and just, right? You bring in the Exodus 34 stuff. You adore the name just by simply saying it. But for some of us, we might wanna try something else. And so you can do this through not saying it, but through a psalm. So if you have a Bible reading plan like, like mine that involves a psalm every single day, this is where you just, now you do that for two, five, or 10 minutes. Just read through a psalm. If you're new to it or don't have a plan, literally the last five psalms in your Bible, 145 through 150, are all like praise psalms. Like there's one of them that's literally like every other word is just like hallelujah. So that you could do that. It'd be great. And so you could do that. Where just two, five, 10 minutes, I'm just gonna read every single day, rotate through, and just read, and just reflect, and pray this song. And then finally, my personal favorite is through song. Um, So you can create your like Awake My Soul, Hallowed Be Thy Name, whatever playlist. Put into it songs that you know, that you can sing along with without needing to look at the lyrics, or at least you've more or less got it down. And then, depending on how long of a time you're gonna be giving to adoring the name, you can just do one to three songs during that time. And literally, it can be as easy as like, hey Siri, shuffle, um, you know, whatever the playlist, did she go off for anybody? Okay. You don't have to say hey anymore. What's up with that? Um, so anyway, you just have a playlist that has a handful of, uh, a handful of um, songs that you know that are specifically songs that are oriented at the praise of God that you can just shuffle And, like, you don't have to sit and pick, and you can just shuffle, and you just sing those out loud while you're sitting there with your coffee, you know, or while you're out for a walk or whatever, or in your bedroom. And so you can do one, two, three, and you just have those songs, and then you pray through them. In the words of uh, Augustine, I quote this all the time He who sings, prays twice. It's like, we are, prayer is singing, and singing is prayer. And so last week, in Movement 1, I defined prayer as the opening of heaven by which we experience the power and presence of God. As we close out this teaching today, I want to move into a week of you adding this movement into your daily practice by considering prayer, not just as the opening of heaven, but as your participation in heaven. And so Revelation chapter 4. Now, you're going to have a lot of questions about Revelation. This is a wild book for me to be dropping us into, with lots of crazy angelic beings and all that stuff, that you're gonna be like, "Wait about that." I want just to focus on the main theme of what's going on here. Okay, John is having a revelation, a vision of what's presently going on in the throne room of heaven. Revelation 4. After this, I, being John, looked, and there in heaven was an open door. And the first voice that I had heard, which is the voice of Jesus speaking to me like a trumpet, said, "Come up here." And I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass simply... Crystal was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who was to come. One brief thing to kind of answer the angels, because you know I'm not going to just leave you with this, is most likely the imagery that John is getting at here is you have these angelic beings that represent all of the animal kingdom, including humanity. And the reason they're covered in eyes is, is they need that many eyes to behold the glory of God. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, it's like a representation of humanity, fall down before the one seated on the throne, and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so adoration of the name is not just, prayer is not simply just our opening up to heaven. It's us participating in what's always going on in heaven. And the wild thing is in the midst of seas of glass, like glass seas and lightning and peals of thunder, is you can tap into and participate in this incredible worship service from your couch at seven in the morning with a cup of coffee. And you're invited to do that. And the thing is, is that as we tap into that more and more, we find that God's glory doesn't just belong before all of our needs. God's glory, it just naturally comes first. This is the thing that it's all about. Let's pray.